Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, December 9th, 2015. This episode 1690 of the Survival Podcast. Pretty cool we'll break 1700 before the end of the year, isn't it? 1700 episodes of the Survival Podcast. You guys have been along for the ride with me, some of you, since it was a ride, since it was the Volkswagen Jetta. My personal remote studio where I used to broadcast from my car. Those of you newer to the show, you may not know that. For the first 18 months of this show, I did the show from a car. And that meant that a lot of things we do today were impossible. There was no listener call-in show. There was no expert counsel. And there were no interviews. Those three things are kind of impossible, if not completely impractical, to do moving down the road anywhere between 8 and 80 miles an hour, which were my variables of speed. And sometimes it was stationary. Just a little throwback there for you as we near the end of the year and a reminder how quickly time goes. This year, when we or this new year coming, we hit June. It will officially be eight years of the Survival Podcast. I you know, went from my 30s to my 40s. I went from being a father to a grandfather while doing this show. Time ticks on. Whether you're doing something for your liberty or not, time ticks on. It moves. It moves forward, and that means either you're moving forward with it Or it's moving past you and you're sliding backward and you're losing your freedom. You're losing your independence. You're losing your personal liberty. You're not, you're becoming less self-reliant and more reliant. You become less self-sufficient and more dependent on others. Just a little reminder for you as we head toward the end of 2016. Christmas will be here like a flash. Remember guys, you will have to do without Jack between Christmas Eve And New Year's Day, I shut down during that period. I spend all that time with my family. This year, though, I am going to be working on a special project. I've talked about it before. I'm going to be doing a 60-edition video series going on YouTube designed to take people from completely unprepared to basically prepared in a 60-day period. And uh, at the end of that 60 days, I imagine most people going through the process won't be as prepared as they could be because there'll be certain things they don't do. So we'll have a little bit of follow-up to help people, people kind of chug along. And by, let's say, 120 days in, have all of those things accomplished and be looking at life totally different. The reason we do this show, the reason we teach you everything from how to grow your own food to how to store food to how to defend yourself to make sure that you don't need to defend yourself by being smart, by not doing stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. We go from the tactical to the practical because once you become that self-reliant individual, once you start to develop your percentages of self-sufficiency, all of a sudden you look at the world differently. You see opportunity instead of fear. And when you're told something has to be done on your behalf, you say, you know, man, I'll, I'll take care of that myself. We become a free and independent people by restoring a culture of preparedness to America. That's what the Survival Podcast is all about and all the different ways that we do that. Today's show, we have Gary Collins, member of the Expert Council, founder of the Primal Power Method, to talk about two subjects. One, primal living, how to be in good health. Um, one of, you know, one of Gary's influences, Rob Wolf. I, I will personally tell you, I believe Rob Wolf saved my life. I believe without finding Rob Wolf's work and returning to uh, the lifestyle that I knew, which was a basically a low-carb, high-protein, high-fat diet, I would probably be dead before I was 50 years old, if I made it there. I was over 300 pounds, and I was on my way headlong into bad things for my future. I was too successful in business and not successful in life. 
When I met Gary and I found Gary's work, I realized he had actually taken some of the things that I had learned from people like Rob Wolf and Lauren Cordain a step further. And the natural adaptations I made to make that fit my life, he was actually helping other people make. And health is an incredibly important part of survival. If you're not healthy, you're going to die. All right, More people in the country every year here die from heart attacks than from being shot. That's just the fact. So if you're going to conceal carry because you might get shot at, maybe you should think about your diet because you might have your heart go and you'll die. Uh, and we look at things like cancer as well. We don't have a cure for cancer. We don't have a 100% prevention strategy. But I believe by living healthy lives, we're more able to reduce our chances of getting cancer and increase our chances of survival if we get them. And we can just go down a list of health things. So that's part of what we're having Gary on for today. We're also going to talk about off-grid living and his project he's been working on. He's building a small off-grid home up in the mountains. And he's doing that remotely, and it's a unique challenge, and a lot of you want to emulate that. Makes a great bug out location, makes a great vacation home, makes a great place to decide you want to live permanently. We'll talk about that and a lot of other really cool stuff. Before I do, let us go ahead and hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSB or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what, just just stick with us. And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? 
If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49 and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Okay, guys, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, you want to get great deals on stuff you're probably buying anyway, stuff in the self-sufficiency, self-reliance world, everything from ammo to seeds, trees to plant in your backyard, everything in between, long-term storage food, you name it. If it's, if it's about the stuff we do, I have discounts for you on it, some really big discounts. We talked about health today. How about 25% off all your herbal supplements uh, for a year from Western Botanicals, one of the premier suppliers in the world? That's just one example of the many discounts that await you as an MSB member. Plus, you support the work that we're doing here. I'll give you $150 worth of free ebooks on day one. It's a great deal, and it makes a great Christmas present. Think about joining today. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. If you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or a first responder like EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, I do offer a discount. Just email me, put TSPC service discount in the subject line, and tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get the discount code back to you. Remember, you must do that before and not after you join. Knock that out as quick as possible for you so we can get into the history segment. I have three for you today. Massachusetts issues paper money. I have Barclays Bank Begins, and I have John Locke proves the mind is a blank slate. These are all good again. Uh, there's times when Alex Shrug puts up three and I go, I'm going to do that one. And I just like think that's so much more interesting to me than the other two. This is one of those ones where I could flip a coin and I decided I'm just going to do the first one because it's about money and I have a lot to say about money. New England has a real problem with their money supply. No coins equals no transactions. The colonies have been reduced to using Indian wampum and commodity trading, mostly in tobacco and animal furs. It's illegal to mint coins, but the need was so great that a few years ago, Massachusetts opened their own mint. The king finally shut it down, but the money shortage has remained. There are no real banks in the colony, so they can't issue banknotes. Yet they must pay their soldiers as King William's war against France gets started. Massachusetts issues promissory notes. Mm, hold on a second, guys. Promissory notes for their soldiers backed by the full faith and credit of the Treasury of Massachusetts. Stop laughing. The soldiers can use these notes to pay their taxes. So the colonists start using these notes like money. When the treasurer realizes this, he prints a lot more of the paper money. Merchants accept the bills at a discount. This is called inflation. By 1716, the whole system will collapse, and they will go back to coins and commodity trading. Like the definition of insanity, the treasurer will try it again and again, expecting different results. My take by Alex Shrug. More is going on here than is apparent. Gresham's Law is at work. Bad money pushes out the good. The good coins quickly disappeared under the mattress and were replaced by the increasingly worthless paper money. Colonial governments were restricted in the ways they could issue money. Governments at this time would back their paper money by grants of land, or they would impo impose the money with, on the populace. But they, 
Eng but England did not allow the colonies to do this. This is why the colonial governments had to engage in this illegal, this legal fiction of an IOU. The colonies' money supply problems were helped by using a Spanish piece of eight, but that didn't stop the colonies from printing their paper money. By 1730, North Carolina was circ circulating 17 different types of money. All right, so this is supposed to, you know, convince us that obviously we should all be using money backed by silver and gold, like the best way in the world. See, I don't, I don't think so. What you notice here is this did work, this did solve the problem, and then abuse of the printing is actually what caused the failure. And, and you, you have to ask yourself, why does that always happen? And, and I'll tell you why it always happens. It always happens because the issuing authority is always a government A government wants to pacify its people. It wants to give them what they want so long as they don't want to do anything the government doesn't want them to do. It wants to remain in power, and it wants to basically buy loyalty. So when you want to buy loyalty and you have a machine sitting over here, whether it makes ones and zeros or prints paper script, and you have a little bit of an issue, the temptation to hit the print button will always exceed common sense. Where an actual private entity realizes that this, this is the goose laying the golden egg. And if I overproduce, I kill the goose. And that's what happens. And so if you actually wanted to create a currency that wasn't backed by silver or gold, it wasn't really backed by anything except what backs all money, the economy that it circulates within, the confidence of individuals to do commerce based on the currency representing value. That's what money is. Money's not gold. Money's not silver. Money's not paper. It's an agreement. It's an agreement between members of an economy. That the way that you could do that, so complicated, but the way you could do that is to ensure a cap on the currency. And there's various ways to do that. But one would be something totally crazy, like planning how much of the currency will exist ever and never letting more of it exist, and then planning a timeline to get there with a known timeline. It will take 10 years, 20 years, 100 years to get to this. And then saying that any additional necessary monetary units can be obtained by fractionalizing the whole. So the money is actually becomes very, very strong, And you have the inverse, you have deflation, where you actually earn money by saving even without an interest rate. Think about that. If the dollar today was worth $2 in 10 years, you could save that dollar, just save the dollar, and it would be better than having it in a bank account. But what that does is it takes away power from the banks, it takes away power from government. It puts power in the hands of every single individual who chooses how they earn, how they save, how they loan, at what interest rate they loan if they choose to loan. Okay, You might then have a society where people actually loan money interest-free. How the hell could that be, Jack? Oh, I don't know. If it was a regular matter, of course, that money increased by 2% purchasing power on an annualized basis, and that was typical, and I loaned you money for a year, I would effectively have a 2% interest rate without actually charging you any interest. Very interesting. But there is no way that possibly, oh, I just described 
Bitcoin. That's what I just described. I didn't, I didn't know that. I'm being facetious. I'm just saying. When we get locked into these ideas about how money has to be gold or has to be backed by land or has to be anything, what we're doing is we're limiting ourselves based on the thinking of the past. And when we limit ourselves based on the thinking of the past, that's when we're doomed to repeat it. When we free ourselves, knowledge of the past, uh, reverence for history, and acceptance of the, the flaws in history. Remember, I said we, sh we don't study history to avoid the, the mistakes of the past. We study history because some idiot will again do whatever was done in the past so we can be prepared for it when they do it. We're not going to avoid the mistakes of the past. The only way we can actually start to do that is to evolve beyond historical thinking and think modern and start asking ourselves, where does value really come from? Value comes from only two things. Natural systems, trees, plants, ore, right? Iron ore, uh, silver ore, gold ore, all of it still, it's all natural. It's all nature. It's all from the earth and from earth systems. So that's one place value comes from. And the only other place value comes from is when somebody or something adds value by assembling or parting out or doing something with one of those resources. And that's it. And that can be value is added by microorganisms that create a condition where mushrooms grow and now we can eat a mushroom. Or human beings create conditions where a mushroom grow and now we can eat a mushroom. But in the end, we have a source of value and a magnifier of value. And the greatest magnifiers of value in an economy, not, not biologically, but in an economy are human beings. So the real source of value in every economy is us. So where should the power lie? With a government? With a quasi-governmental you know, fascist centralized bank? In a complete private banking system? Or should you create a system where everybody knows the rules, everybody knows how it works, everybody understands the way things are going to work, and then people can make decisions on exchange based on knowns. Which one sounds better? Remember, just because it sounds better doesn't mean it is, but it's worth exploring to see if it could be. That's what I see when I look at virtual currencies like Bitcoin. All right, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and take care of introducing our special guest. He's a good friend. Member of the Expert Council, an all-around great guy. His name is Gary Collins. He's the creator of the Primal Power Method. He's here today to talk to us about optimizing our health, living the primal-slash-paleo way, and living off-grid. With that, hey, Gary, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on again, Jack. Hey, um, you know, I always ask guests to introduce themselves, and you're on the expert council, but through that, you don't really introduce yourself, tell your background, your story, how you got into what you're doing, and what have you. So for those that haven't heard one of your previous interviews, I think this is the fourth or fifth time you've been on the show as a, as a full-on guest, can you kind of tell people, you know, how you came into the world where you're doing things with the primal power method, off-grid, et cetera, what was the path that led you here? Because it is a pretty wonky one. Yeah, and I'll keep it short because I think most of the followers now, uh, your listeners, they kind of know who I am. But just as former uh, special agent with the FDA and U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and military intelligence background and all that good stuff, and, and it's a unique blend of, of my athletic background as an athlete and working for the government and putting together a health and wellness program that was logical and made sense because I had been duped 
uh, and was doing things wrong myself, and I thought I was healthy. And that's where the primal power method kind of came from was this experiences on the inside, personal knowledge, working with clients, and piecing it all together in a simplistic way so, so people could kind of figure it out and get started on their health journey without going down all these rabbit holes and confusion and fads. And and that's the biggest problem I noticed people had is, and, and to include me, is just going in the wrong direction, not knowing any better. And that's the way everything's kind of developed today in health and wellness. It's more of to, to confuse you and get you to spend money and and keep you unhealthy in certain circumstances to keep you on the treadmill of the money-making machine that is our health industry today. So that's how I pieced everything together and put together the three books that I have out now and my supplement line that I sell, and it's doing well. Uh, I've gotten a ton of feedback from listeners who have followed the program, and uh, it seems to be doing uh, working for them. So everyone's uh, doing really well, and the best part is everyone comes back and goes, God, that was simple. <laughs> that was the goal. I'll tell you what I love about what you do. So I said during the intro segment that you weren't here for um, that, you know, when I look at what you're doing, you come from the same slant as people like Lauren Cordain and Rob Wolf, but you have your own unique attributes and things like that. Yep. And I look at Rob Wolf's work and I'm like, I don't want to hear anybody say shit about Rob because I honestly feel Rob Wolf saved my life that finding his work and, and, and making that adapt into my life took a hundred pounds off me. Um, and changed everything about the way I was living. And yeah. so that's great. But I'm also what I consider kind of a unique person and that I'm kind of an asshole in a positive way is I guess the way I look at it. When I, I don't care how much of an expert somebody is on something. When I go, that shit just isn't going to work for me. I just adapt it. Or if I go, yeah, not so much. Cause I already know that you can do that. And that's okay. For instance, especially when Rob started, when, he, when his first book came out and all, he was very much on really low fat. It was high protein, lowish fat, and then really killing off the carbs. And because he was all a hundred percent, you know, grass fed and little bits about trimming fat here. And then I'm like, I'm not worried about fat at all. Now I'm worried about fat from mass-produced KFOs with lots of toxicity in it, but basically I'm just going to ignore that part. And I think the problem for most people is I talk about it being the guy that can't make the chicken soup because he's got all the ingredients that the recipe calls for except the parsley, and he can't just say, screw it, I don't have parsley, and just make the damn soup. And I think what your book says is, okay, so you don't like parsley. Okay, then you can do this. And it kind of guides people down that self-assessment and self-creation because – I think you're a lot like me where I say, if I give you my exact plan, you're not going to follow it. But if yeah. I help you make a plan, then you will follow it because it's yours. Well, and that's the thing with, with health is everyone is unique to a certain degree. And there's no way I can create something specifically for you. I can give you the basic guidelines. And, and you know, I, I know Rob. I know Dr. Cordain. And their stuff is just more what I call it is it's just more technical. And, you know, they get into the the nitty gritty and the biochemistry more than I wish to because I find it too confusing for most people. Not to say it's a wrong way. The information is fantastic. I mean, I read it and I learn things from it. But I think for the average person, it becomes too complicated and too regimented. And even and if they do me, understand it, they don't, re they don't remember it. Yeah, it's right? really, that's the biggest problem is it's really hard to, to remember. And that's why I kept my book short and simple to certain points and the main points. And it's different strokes for different folks, you know. Some people do better with Rob's stuff. Some people do better with mine. It's all preference. 
Um, I think we're teaching, you know, mostly similar principles, but mine's a different skew because I'm the only guy who was on the inside. You know, they'll, they'll talk about, you know, certain things, but they really don't know. They're doing it by what they've read or what they've heard. I'm saying it from an inside perspective. I was in the meetings. I was there. I was doing these investigations. And that's where I'm a little different too is, is that that world is a little more total against more modern medicine. And I'm not, I'm not totally against it. I like to implement, you know, modern medicine with traditional and ancient healing methods. I like to implement everything together because I think there's pieces, good pieces to all of them. Agree. And yeah, you know, and I think that's where I'm a little different animal and people like that, you know, that I'm not just very skewed and one sided. I'm uh, even though I've been called narrow minded and I guess a jackass at some points, which is totally wrong because they're not listening to me. Well, I, I think it's like Dr. Bones just answered a question on vaccines, right? He, he yeah, I started out with, okay, so I'm a doctor. I was a doctor for, for many years. I built up a practice, retired, sold off to my partners. I'm speaking this from this at a medical viewpoint, and I'm also very much uh, accepting of alternative medications and things like that. So I'm looking at it that way. And I'm a statistician, so I'm looking at the numbers. And what that means is if you're pro-vaccine, I'm going to piss you off. And if you're anti-vaccine, I'm going to piss you off. Yep. But all I can do is tell you the way that I know things are. And both people on the, the sides, the, the opposite polar sides, are going to just lump me in with the, the polar opposite. But I have to tell you the truth anyway because that's all I can do. And I think you're very much the same way. Very much so. And I did. I read some of the comments on that. And... uh I was intrigued because I get asked questions on vaccinations all the time. And a lot of the hardcores don't like my answers because I go, well, I would not want a world without vaccinations, period. I went, they have <laughs> saved a lot of people's lives. Yeah, I, I, I got to agree with that 100 percent. And, of course, now I'll have all the anti-vax people pissed at me. and <laughs> But yet all the pro-vax people will call me an anti-vax or conspiracy because I'll say things like, Maybe we shouldn't give children 18 vaccines by the time they're two years of age and do them all at the same time. So if there is a reaction, we don't really effing know which one caused it. Oh, you're anti-science. You can't win in it. And <laughs> the thing is, too, it's it's not just the vaccinations. It's a whole host of other things working synergistically together to cause the reaction to the vaccinations, you know. I don't think they've ever been able to pinpoint just specifically to vaccinations. I've seen some of the research data on certain ones, but it's a moving target, too, because as as humans, we're becoming sicker and more genetically broken with each generation. So yeah. things that didn't affect, you know, our parents and our grandparents are now affecting us. So it's hard to pinpoint what's causing what anymore. And I do know from personal experience, when I was in the military, I got my typhoid and yellow fever back to back by accident, mm -hmm. duplicated. So I got my initial uh, uh, immunizations in boot camp, and then I went to A school, and they didn't the the doc didn't read my record right. So you just got it again. I got it again, and really close together. Holy God, was I sick! And I remember after he did it, and he looked at the file because. Uh, he kind of looked at it and went, uh-oh. And I went, what? He goes, oh, I just double-dosed you. And he was oh, kind of scared. A lot. <laughs> yeah, and I, it took me about, I'd say, four weeks to kind of snap yeah. back because, uh, you know, I had achy joints, headache, fever. I was a mess for a while. 
Yeah. And that was kind of my introduction of, yeah, you know, immunizations, if you get a little too much or, you know, they can cause a problem. Well, here's how I look at it. They are, there's no two ways about it. They are a drug, and therefore they have side effects and associated risks. Yep. So yep. that means we should use them as they make sense in quantities that make sense, where the same thing, the, the, the adverse reactions can be quantified as to this caused the reaction in this individual. So that means that we probably don't need to be giving hepatitis B vaccines to infants who are not likely to be intravenous drug users. Just saying, right? They don't yeah. have that risk, so why use something with any risk to prevent a disease that they have literally no opportunity to, to end up contracting that disease? And people would say, well, what if they have intravenous drug-using parents? Okay, vaccinate those infants, or take their children away from the people that are intravenous drug users. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's not a, a case to vaccinate every child in America against a disease. They have virtually no... Uh, likelihood of encountering any risk for. And so then you say that and then all of the, you know, establishment people think you're just nuts because that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, the, it, it's, then when you say, okay, look, uh, some of these other illnesses are actually really very much a risk to young children. And if they get these diseases, it can kill them. So it's probably worth the risk of doing this in a more moderate distribution pattern so we can monitor for side effects and risk. Oh, you're just, you know, uh, you just don't believe that my kid has autism because he was vaccinated. And my response to that is, I probably don't. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm not saying that there's not some level of correlation there. But it seems to me today that every single parent with an autistic kid is 100% certain vaccines did it, as though there was no autism whatsoever prior to vaccines, which we know is false. Yeah, and, and has has autism rate gone up greatly over the last 10, 20 years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, like we said, it, you can't pinpoint it just to one thing. Yeah. You know, there the, those kids' immune systems are also lower from what we've seen as well, as far as their 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 gut flora is usually from having too many, uh, you know, as far as the the antibiotics and everything that the mother has taken over the years. Yeah. And also her bad gut flora because they pick a lot of it up through the vaginal canal. Then you got cesarean sections, so they're missing that whole thing. So they have a damaged immune system to begin with. Now and then we shock it, right? That's, then we shock it exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, they already had the broken immune system, you know, or or not properly functioning immune system. And maybe the you know the immunizations kind of kickstart or did something to push it over. Which is possible, but we, that's the thing. No one knows for sure. Yeah. And I hate when people go that hard lined. This is it. And this is how it is. And it's just like a DO. I went to an osteopathic doctor who was flat out animate that I didn't need spinal fusion. She could have cured my torn disc and my crushed spine by just healing hands and supplements. And I looked at this lady. Yeah, you're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I did. I went, you are out of your friggin' mind. No, now we're in a mechanical injury beyond the ability of the body to repair the damage, and that's when we need a surgeon. Well, and that's the thing. She was a very well-respected DO. Okay. And I just went, whoa. Once she told me that, and I mean, she didn't take insurance. It was like 300 bucks a pop every time I went there. And I just scratched my head, and I went, this is part of the problem with the other side yeah. Of, yeah. The, of the health industry. And not only that, but I investigated those people. Yeah. I investigated both sides, modern medicine 
and the naturopathic kind of traditional ancient medicine. And both of them were just as bad. Yeah. And people get pissed off on the holistic <laughs> side when I see it. They lose their mind. They yeah. come glued. Yeah. And I'm all, I investigated them. Yeah. I went, they're just as greedy as the other doctors. You can't, it's human nature. You're, no matter what the field is, you got your good and bad. Here's, here's the perfect example of, of this where I, I feel that this is why I didn't get sick, but I, I'm not going to be the person that says conclusively this is why I didn't get sick. But it does kind of it, it work as a testament toward what you're saying about good bacteria in the gut. So I take your supplements, including the probiotic. I eat fermented foods at least four to five times a week. My father-in-law is now in an assisted living uh, center for Alzheimer's, and that place got decimated with some kind of a stomach bug where people are vomiting and coming out the other end at the same time, stuff like that. My wife's down there four or five times a week to visit him. So, of course, she gets sick. Yeah. Our grandson's over here for one day. He gets sick. He goes home. Both his parents get sick. Guess who didn't get sick? Yep. Me. I didn't get anything. And I've been down there, not just my, been exposed to my wife, I've been down there to the, the assisted living facility like three or four times like her while people are, you know, old people are vomiting in the hallways. And she's like, well, why don't you think you got sick? And I said, I think at least part of it is my gut is full of probiotic bacterium. And you not only refuse to eat this stuff and don't always take your probiotic like you're supposed to, you just took a course of antibiotics three weeks earlier and you freaking wiped yours out. So not only did you get sick and, and everybody else got sick, you got sick worse than the other three did. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean that that, but see, that's the thing. If I say 100%, if you take probiotics and eat fermented food, you will never get a stomach flu. Well, that's, that's equally stupid as saying there's no validity in the fact that that can keep you healthy. Well, it, we know that, you know, 85% of our immune system is basically housed in our gut. You know, we pretty much know that and modern medicine starting to jump on board. They're starting to, you know, give people more probiotics and talk more about, you know, cultured foods. But with that, it doesn't mean that it's you're not going to get sick. Um, I do know from my own experience in our peoples is once you get that gut flora kind of back and healthy, you know, I used to, and I know everyone goes to this, my friends go to every, you know, two, three times a year, you get the trots out of nowhere, right? Remember those days when you, you know, back when I was eating what was supposedly healthy, just out of nowhere, you get kind of a bug for three, four days. You're yep. like, wow, what, what the heck is going on? And then it goes away. Ever since years ago, since I changed that, I think I've had one case of mild diarrhea in like eight years. There was you probably know? when you were here and drank like a fish too. Well, that, oh, well, that, yeah, you get, you get the booze squirts. Those are totally different. That's totally different. Yeah, that's totally different. But you know what I mean. And I, oh so man, now, that is the first time somebody ever said booze squirts <laughs> on TSP. I guarantee you. Anyway, go ahead. Well, we had a nickname for it in college. We used to call them the Hurley squirts because uh, remember when Bob Hurley? This is yeah. we'll date ourselves. Duke was playing, I want to say Kentucky or someone, and he had bad diarrhea. <laughs> and and he had to leave the court and run to the restroom right in the middle of the game. Oh, no. And the announcers were all, yeah, Bob Hurley's got uh, a stomach flu issue, yeah. and uh, he had to leave the court. And so we started calling him the Hurley squirts from there on out. A little side note. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, – you know, it's not to say that you're not going to have loose bowels at some point or for some reason, but that prolonged period, I remember a couple of times where I had it, got some stomach virus 
and it would go on five, six days. And you're just like, oh, would this just stop? Please stop. And it just would proliferate, kind of get, go on until it finally, I don't have, I haven't had that, like I said, forever. I don't remember, you know, I can't even remember the last time I had a stomach issue like that. And that's the part of the, pro- the thing is you get healthier, but that doesn't mean that you're never going to get sick. It's, you know, animals get sick in nature, you know, sure, they, sure. They, they're not when they're not exposed to anything, you know, nature in itself is toxic. There's just certain things that you can't escape. But I think overall, the message is you will be healthier. That's the thing. You you can recover faster, resist better, and and those are all subjective because some people naturally have greater immunity than others, and some people naturally, just by genetics, have weaker immunity than others. But we all are dealt the hand we're dealt, and the good good news is we have a lot more options in playing our hand than we do in poker. We don't just say I'll take two cards. We can actually kind of strategically stack the deck from our side. So, you know, kind of with that in mind, what are some basic things you think everybody should be doing in their lives to be healthier? Well, and, and that's where I get into the survivalist community because a lot of people always ask, they go, what the heck does a primal paleo kind of teachings guy have to do with survivalism, uh, you know, self-sufficiency, uh, you know, prepper world? I go, well, everything starts with your health. Everything. That's where our whole world as a human starts from. And with that, in order to be you know, self-sufficient, self-reliant, however you want to put it. Um, you have to be healthy. You have to not be attached to your doctor or to the local health healthcare facility. So some of the simple tips that I teach are basically, you know, my five principles are real straightforward, but uh, the main one is keep it simple. You know, don't overthink this stuff. People tend to overthink their health drastically, and they read book, 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 blog, 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 video, video. And next thing that you know, they're totally confused. And they've implemented 10 different techniques at one time, and they're all screwed up. They don't know, you know, what happened. And I just tell people, keep it simple, straightforward. Keep your diet, you know, find a diet that works for you. Even though I teach primal, the kind of paleo way, I'm not just stringent to that. Some people can consume grains, no problem. I've seen it. They do fine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Other people, it just wrecks them. It destroys them. Some people, dairy, a lot of people, dairy does wreck a lot of people today. Um, and there's many reasons for that. But other, you know, 30, 40 percent of the population can do dairy no problem. Yeah. And I um, mean, another thing with the dairy, just real quick, is I found a lot of people that say they can't drink milk because it, it just tears them up. If they drink raw milk, Yep. All of a sudden, they don't have a problem anymore. It's almost like there's freaking enzymes in there that help you digest the damn lactose or something. I don't like. And there God is. knew what he was doing when he made a cow and decided the calf would be able to grow on the milk. And I mean, it, and that's another example of you get the extremes, though, right? Where people say there's absolutely, positively no risk whatsoever to raw milk for anybody. Period. Infinity. And it's like, yeah. Well, that's not exactly true either. There's risks to putting your socks on in the morning. I mean. Whenever anybody says something's 100% risk-free, I wonder if it comes from the magical unicorn world where all our politicians think the money comes from. Well, and that's the battle, too, is the people that they're they're ripping on, they're just as guilty of doing the same thing. And I hear that, too. That's really big in the ancestral health world about, oh, raw dairy, as long as it's raw, you're totally fine. I go, whoa, 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 hold on, <laughs> you know, if you have a compromised immune system or, you know, a young child – that has not been raised on raw dairy or even has, 
there's risk associated with that. Um, there's some pretty powerful bugs in nature. And it's not to say that those bugs are overall bad, but they could be bad to specific individuals. And I'm with you. And I, I never am a guy that just says, oh, no, long as it's raw dairy, totally healthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, ah, I don't well, know. And like, that. You know, you'll love this one. There was an article out recently. I probably couldn't find it if I tried to because I just immediately like closed it and didn't bother following up on it. But it was about paleo and primal and, and things like that and how we say not to eat lots of potatoes. But early hunter-gatherers ate lots of tubers. And basically it ended with you know something that really makes a case and makes you consider the other side to be legitimate. Like, so shut up and eat your potatoes. And I'm sitting there going, okay, the person that wrote this knows absolutely nothing about botany. Because until the 1600s, nobody in Europe, Africa, or Asia ever saw a potato like they're talking about. Sweet potatoes, yes. Tubers, tons of them. But the, the potato, the New World potato, was unknown to Europe until the 1600s. Yep. So our history with the potato is 420-odd years or something like that in earnest. Um, so the entire... Angle is predicated on a mythology and a misunderstanding of something like, well, our, our Paleolithic ancestors ate tubers. Of course they did. And there's a lot of tubers that, in general, people in the primal world say, that's okay. Maybe don't live on it, but that's, you know, or it's preferable. And then yep. we also have to say, okay, well, what kind of potatoes did a freaking Inca eat? Right? And they weren't yep. giant Idaho russets, right? Well, and that's where the part... That gets so confusing and where people get, I think, frustrated with kind of some of those teachings. And that's where, again, I'm different, too. And I, I tell everyone, that's why I'll only give you the, the kind of basic building blocks. You have to figure it out from there because it's tough today because as Americans, we're, we're a hodgepodge of multi-world gen genetics. So our digestive systems, I consider, are kind of confused. We're not real sure. And trying to eat your ethnic foods, per se, is pretty tough for the average American today. But you can get an idea. But some cultures who, pre, you know, historically ate more tubers would have different digestive enzymes to break down the starch and utilize those sugars differently to where they wouldn't have such an insulin spike as to someone else who may not have ethnically been exposed to those. It's that example of the Japanese have a specific digestive enzyme that helps them break down rice completely differently than the rest of the world. Well, that's because they've adapted over hundreds of thousands of years yeah. to their diet. You know, we're, we're just a couple hundred years into what our diet is today. It takes 40 to 100, 40,000 to 100,000 years for the human body to adapt to a significant dietary change. Or in other words, for, for, for it to kill enough of your population that doesn't reproduce so that the people that can handle it and do well are the ones left reproducing. And exactly. I, like, that's, that's like, you know, that's, that's, it, nobody wants to put it that way, but I mean, it's not a hundred percent that way, but it, it kind of sort of is in the long duration that your people that do well on a diet are more likely to have lots of children, live to an old age, hand down what they're doing, and therefore we as a species adapt over time. And that doesn't mean if somebody that was, you know, of European ancestry eats a bowl of rice, they're going to fall over and die. It just means that 
they're more likely to have issues with it being a staple in their diet than someone of Asian descent who has a, a genetic adaptation kind of written into the code. Yeah, and even that that change that's written in the code is softwired. It's not necessarily hardwired. That's why it can. That's why we can adapt and change. If it was hardwired, we would never be able to change anything. Mm-hmm. Our diet would be very strict and would never change through any different cultural, ethnic background. So everything is when you look at it that way. You have to look at softwired, but that doesn't mean it happens overnight. There's got to be change. And this sounds people <laughs> a little morbid and a little people think I'm a little twisted the way I say this, but we're the only animal that actually proliferates its weak. Mm. You know, and no, that, it's true. It's, and, it's true. And, and that totally changes the genetic makeup of the human species, because now we end up instead of in the wild where, you know, the weak, you know, the weak caribou or the weak elk is eaten by the wolves or, you know, the, the mountain lion. Well, we we keep and prop that broken genetic link going. And what that does is it further reproduces and then it breaks the genetics and keeps breaking it down the line, which even makes it more confusing on what works and what doesn't. And that's what I'm saying. It's so confusing and our bodies are in a strange state that it's hard for me to definitively say anything will positively work. Like I said, I can only give you the basics. And anyone who tells you differently is just an asshole. They're just full of it. it, (laughs) Because... I get really aggravated with some of the people that I'm attached to supposedly in the communities in the health world who say, this is how it goes. This is how your body works. I yeah. know fact. And you're like, you're full of shit. You don't know anything. You're killing me with this. See, I say something sort of like that. I think people take it out of context, though. So, so my overall rule for deciding whether or not something is regularly in my diet. So that's the first part. right? Yeah. That doesn't mean I will never eat a piece of bread, okay? But regularly a part of my diet in some quantity is could I eat it in its raw natural state? And if I could, then it pretty much passes the basic Jack Spirico litmus test. Not saying this has to be for anybody but me, but that's kind of my deal. And then my my summation of that is if the food is meant for humans to consume, humans can pick it up off the ground or off the tree or out of the animal, shove it in their mouth and eat it. That's literally what biologically makes a human food. So if there has to be some sort of a complex process to make the food edible, and if you've ever handled wheat on a shaft and tried to eat that, you'll choke to death on it. If you did, (laughs) you know, if at least it fell off on its own and you happen to pick up individual berries, you'll break your teeth on it. You can't eat it. You cannot eat it in its raw natural state. To me, biologically, it's not human food. That doesn't mean we can't create something edible from it. It doesn't even mean that some people not be, might not be able to eat the heck out of it. But, my, but when people say, like, well, you know, these people ate bread all their lives and they were old and healthy. My grandfather smoked two packs of camel no filters every day from the time he was about 16 years old until he died at, at, at almost 100. He drank whiskey and beer like a fish. And... Even though he did his health totally crash like the last three years of his life, if you make it to 90, 96, I think is when his health crashed, and he died at 99, and, and your health crashes then, screw it, whatever. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to try to make the case that smoking Camel no filters, drinking cheap whiskey and, and, and beer like a fish until you float every night 
and, and, and a normal person would have destroyed their liver by 60 living the way he did and probably coughed their lung up. He had black lung and he smoked camel no filters from the coal mines. That doesn't mean that's the way you should live. Yeah, and, and that's... I'm glad I got his genetics. Don't get me wrong. I'm... <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, most people in my family live to close to 100 or around 100. Um, and then there's another side of my family that only makes it till about 60, you know? And that's just different pieces, and I've got pieces of those both, but that doesn't mean I'm going to die at 75, you know? You could uh, die at 60, you could die at 100, you don't know. But you all you can know. do is make the best of the hand you were dealt, and I don't think there's any doubt, you know, taking away things like being hit by a gravel truck or something, that if you live a healthy life, overall, you're likely to extend your total life and, more importantly, your quality life. That That's the most important part, is the quality of life. Because a lot of the arguments on, you know, eating a healthier lifestyle, and I used to, you hear this from the older folks a lot. They go, oh, you're just, you're just not enjoying yourself. You know, what, yeah. you can get three, four years out of that? Yeah, maybe, but it's more of that you're seeing the aging population now. The, the last basically half of their life is misery and on multiple prescription drugs. You know, and, and, and Alzheimer's coming in earlier and yeah. you're seeing th this whole host of other issues. And my attitude is I don't want to live to a hundred if from age 50 to a hundred, I feel like complete crap. Yeah. And, and, and I'd rather live to age 50 and die at age 51, you know, and just fall over dead than live those last 50 years unhealthy. Um, and that's the thing. It doesn't guarantee. And I think that's part of the misconception too, is a lot of these people preach that Oh, you're going to be perfectly healthy and you're going to live a lot. No, 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 no. Yeah. It, 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 who knows? It because is natural for human beings to live to at least a hundred and be healthy until the day that they die. No, it's no. not. You know, really you hope it works that way. It, but why not set yourself up to have the best opportunity to live a quality life? Yeah. And that's how I look at it is I don't, and also you, once you get into it, you know how it is, you enjoy it. Once you get into it, you start feeling better. Yeah. It's not like I'm going out eating sawdust in order to be healthy. I mean, I wouldn't eat the food I eat unless I well, enjoyed eating it. Here's what I noticed happens, right? Like, you actually rediscover the fact that human beings are not meant to consume this crap. We, I did a show recently on making hard ciders, and I kind of bashed the whole Angry Orchard, you know, industry and the sweetened cider stuff, and it tastes like a wine cooler. And we had a couple of people come on the blog and say, you know, why are people so opposed to that? Why, why do you think it tastes like garbage, you know? And it's like, well, because it does. But my reasoning behind it is, Okay, what are, who are they selling this product to? They, you know, like this product, they make it like a tough guy product, angry orchard, like this guy cutting his arm off with a, an axe yeah. and, and, and soldering it back on or something, and he's all gruff. And, but then they sell this, like, you know, sweet apple marmalade flavored garbage. Well, they're marketing it to 20 somethings that grew up their entire life drinking Coke and or Pepsi, eating Twinkies and, and consuming high fructose corn syrup in almost everything that they eat. And I never really was big on the, the that, but I did eat a lot of things that you would call sweet. And one of the things I did immediately when I when I stopped, you know, eating poorly and and, and starting to lose weight was I went well. If I'm gonna have coffee, I can't put a teaspoon of sugar in every cup of coffee. So I stopped putting. I just stone cold no more sugar. And I thought coffee tasted like absolute garbage when I did that. 
After about two weeks, I'm like, oh, this is what coffee's supposed to taste like. Yeah. And my wife still sweetens her coffee. And if I accidentally pick up my wife's cup of coffee and I take a sip of it, she doesn't use much either. I feel like I just ate a marshmallow. And, and I and I'll, I'll go to the sink and I'll spit it out. Or you did the same process I did. I went through yeah. the same process with coffee. Same exact thing. And and like so, but that like translates to other things. So like initially, I would go like sixty days hard. You know, I went for my first six months hardcore. But after like a month or two, I would say, you know what, I'm going to go out and eat some kind of garbage just so I I'm not tempted. I'm just going to go out and have a cheat day. And I'd go down to a restaurant. I'd hog down like you know chicken fried steak, gravy, biscuits, and and I would get done. And I'd go. That wasn't really worth it. No, I don't like like it wasn't as good as I remembered it being. And the longer I've done this, the more that's become true. And even the things that still are good, like my wife went out and bought some ice cream, and so she felt better about buying it for her. She bought me a thing of Chunky Monkey, which is it's. I'll be honest, it's Ben and Jerry's. It's pretty badass. And oh, yeah. she put it in the refrigerator, and I know when when I eat that, that I'm not going to feel like it wasn't worth it. It would be like that was totally. Freaking worth it. But it's been there three weeks, and the reason I haven't eaten it isn't because I'm trying to take an extra pound off before Christmas or whatever. I just haven't wanted it. And, and I, I think people have a hard a hard time understanding, like, if you if you take this path, that's where you end up. You just And when you do open it, it's on, baby. I'm going to eat the hell out of that, and I know it. But right now, I'm not tempted. It's going to become a point where, like, you know what, I'd like some ice cream. And you get that. It, it's not willpower. It's it's biology, I think, because I don't have shit for willpower. <laughs> no, and and that's you know when you talk about sweets and our desire for sweets, the reason why genetically we've never turned off that desire for sweets is in nature. Sweets hard to find. Yeah, it's really really difficult to find. The only thing that is overly sweet would be honey. Yeah, and and, and there's all these stinging to... bastards that get pissed off when you take it. Very angry, <laughs> and they get upset. And if you get stung enough, you will die. Um, you know, or at least have the possibility and be very miserable. Yeah. That they have shown that even, you know, cultures that are still around that haven't been touched by the Western diet who live, you know, a pretty rugged lifestyle, pretty unchanged from traditional what they've done for the last thousands of years is they will, they'll gorge themselves silly on honey yeah. and to where their bellies are just poking out. And, but they only do it if they're lucky, maybe once or twice a year. Yeah. And, but we're, we're, we're ingrained to desire that sweet, and this is kind of my well, fruit. Just, they'll, they'll gorge on fruit, but the fruit's seasonal. It's not always there, and and it's far less sweeter than modern today fruit that's been hybridized so many times for ultimate sweetness. That I tell people that you know this is kind of my philosophy on it, but it's just Gary's logical thinking. Well, we're, we are an animal. We came from nature. I mean, just like the bear, just like the wolf, just like everything. And we've kind of detached ourselves from that kind of reasoning. We think we're so unique that we don't we're, – we're so civilized now that we couldn't possibly go poop in the woods and go eat off the ground. No. Well, I hate to break it to you, people. That is where we came from, and that's what our bodies still today are made to do. So when it comes close to winter, if you're not in a, a you know a more moderately temperature area of the world – most places have winters, you know, obviously have seasons and not only that, but we've gone through five complete ice ages that we know of where there wasn't probably any fruit, hardly at all, anything sweet. But if we could get to it and tubers as well, you know, going digging up roots and animals do the same thing, well, we would be fattening, fattening ourselves up for winter. And if you can get a hold of fruit tubers, it kind of 
turbocharges the fat store process, you know, and that's just an adaptation of, of our genetics and our desire and our ability to survive. And so if you were to eat fruit, fructose stores fat at some considered 40 times faster than normal, you know, sugar, you know, anything contained outside of uh, that doesn't contain fructose and high dose doses. So think of that. That makes sense. So why would we turn that off? We don't need to. Well, why do we become lactose intolerant then? Well, obviously that if you have, you know, a bunch of guys around women who are breastfeeding and young men, we're going to want breast milk (laughs) if we're not (laughs) lactose intolerant. Yeah. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to starve the newborn out that needs the breast milk for, for its initial development. That's why I think genetically why uh, a lot of us are lactose intolerant is that that gene has gotten turned off. Then we're not and, born we're not born that way, but we but it's like a time gene. Like you're supposed to drink milk as an infant, and then you're not. Yeah, because if you did, you'd be competing. Like I said, you'd have five, six, seven, eight, nine year olds and grown men. Well, yeah. fighting over breast milk because it is, and this isn't some sick, twisted, you know, weird thing. It yeah. would be that it is very dense. It is a nutrient dense food group. Well, so, you also uh, have, had, let's say, a full-grown adult female that's healthy at 120 pounds trying to consume enough calories and convert them to keep herself alive and keep alive a, a, a male that's bigger than her. Yeah. That doesn't work. I mean, the reason we can yeah. milk a cow is because the cow weighs, you know, half a ton. Exactly. And, and and that's why I like to have people do this kind of use that that reasonable reasonable thinking of, and I always say, just put yourself, if you ever have a question, just throw yourself back in nature. What would you have access to and what would you eat? What would you consume on a daily basis? And, you know, you've heard this too. You hear these, you know, these guys that are kind of out there that, well, well, humans would have eaten like two to three hundred varieties of foods. And I'm all, wow, what? Where I'm all, would you get it? I'm all, where would you get that? Yeah. You know, because they're these guys prescribing to this really wide variety diet. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't know about you, but I know where I grew up. There wasn't two to three hundred food varieties for me. Well, and there I also think it's regional, right? Like you would eat what regional. was available where you are. Like people would say, well, like shellfish, it really shouldn't eat shellfish. I guarantee if you're a Paleolithic person and you lived on a coastal region, where there's all that protein and, and, and some level of fat just sitting there. And all you have to do is pick it up, toss it in the fire, and it cooks itself, or bust it open with a rock. And you know the old saying, he was a brave soul that ate the first raw oyster. But once somebody else did it and you realized it was good for food, you would live on it. You would make it a staple because it's so readily available. If if you were a, a Paleolithic uh, Native American on the Great Plains – you probably never ate a freaking oyster or a clam, nor saw one in your life, but you probably ate the hell out of bison. Yep. And it, that is indicative to our regionality as species. Well, and we've lost that too, that we're, we're you know, genetically we're different in the sense like, say, you know, my ancestry is like Irish, Scottish, Swedish, you know, English. It's a mix. But now I'm, my, I'm, I'm forcing my body to eat a diet to the Western United States, then again, that is transported from all over the world. So you look at it that way and you go, holy cow, you know, it's almost, it's very difficult for us to eat correctly 
in the sense that because people preach that they go just eat ethnically what you would eat and then eat re- it's more complicated than that and that's why I tell people you got to just do your best best that you can hey a lot um, of our ancestors what they ate was whatever they could get because they were starving to death for yeah. generations oh heck yeah and you know? and the difference between eating when things are plentiful and eating when you were in survival mode are different too. That's when grains yeah. became more predominant too, and in seeds and nuts and tubers, is you're just trying to get calories. You well, didn't what's ethnic, right? What's yeah. ethnic? So if you look at traditional Irish cooking, awful lot of potatoes in it. But that's yeah. not ethnically Irish. That's a product of international trade, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Recent. So if you go if you go from like 1600 in Ireland back, no one knew what the hell a potato was. But now it's like it's like associated with Irish cuisine. Well, that's just because it was something that grew really well, worked beautifully in their climate until the potato famine, was easy to grow, survived when the enemy came and burned your field. Because if it already said tubers, you just dug it up and it didn't matter. So it became part of the culture, but it became part of their culture relatively late in even that 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 tribes because it's really more of a tribal society that whole group up there uh, it became part of their 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 tribal society's ethnic food very very late in the game yeah and that's how you know humans were we were very tribal and we were that's why they always use the term hunter gather when you think of paleo and primal because that's what we were you know we had to move if you stayed in one area, you would eventually hunt out the game I mean you would eat everything in that region so you would have to move. And in, in order to do that, you wouldn't move from like California to New York. You would move within that, that, that California area. So necessarily you, your, your diet wouldn't change that much. And that's where I get frustrated with some people too. I go, your diet would, yeah, you would be nomadic. Yeah. But you would be traveling huge distances. Yeah. You would be traveling in an area, a specific maybe 50 miles at yeah. the most. You may travel if you were, they're, they're, they've shown that some some tribes have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles, and some yeah. even got in boats and went to different continents. That's all good and great, but that's the exception and not the rule. See, here's my belief, right? So my belief is all of that expansionism came from nonconformists. Those were people that even when they got to the edge of the tribe's uh, you know area, because they were like, okay, there's too many people here. You need to spread out. When they yeah. spread out, they were still like, I, I don't want to be near these assholes. I want to leave. And, and to me, this is like, I'm being a little funny here, but a little serious too. This is why all the loonies live in California. <laughs> because what happened is the country was settled from the west to the east to the west, right? Yeah. Sure and was. what happened is, is, is the people that couldn't be happy anywhere went till they hit an ocean. And all their genetics are still sitting there right where you live. And that's why there's so many loons out there. You know, and gosh, you know, I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a resident of California anymore. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've been a Washington resident for about a year and a half now, um, and I'm going back and forth, and that's where, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, my off-the-grid project, and that's why I'm such a goofy bird in, in the kind of health and wellness industry. I'm into kind of the a different lifestyle as opposed to most people in that genre. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing I've realized doing that is seeing just up there, you know, the different foods and, and different things I'm exposed to as far as eating up there as opposed to California. But yeah, you're right. California is goofy land. I, yeah. I just, I'm back here at my mom's now for the winter and I've only, you know, I've been going back and forth the last couple of years and every time I come back to California, I just go, whoa, 
You know, it yeah. it's very, very different than the rest of the country. That's how I feel when I turn the TV on. I'm like, whoa, everybody's really is nuts. But anyway, let's let's segue there into kind of this other the other stuff I want to talk to you about today. Um, you have been really working hard on building a house off the grid. How's that project going? You've made some progress, it looks like, from some recent updates I've seen. Yeah, you know, it's going it's going pretty well. Um, it's 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 another life journey. And with anything like that, the change, it, it's never just like I yeah, preach in the, the health and wellness is anytime you change, it's, it's definitely painful in the beginning. And that's what I'm kind of learning. I'm going through this, you know, evolving, but there's no template. Just like there's no real specific template to you for health and wellness, there's general generalities. I'm noticing this off the grid thing, you know, for me, and you know, I am, Jack, I just do my own thing. I don't even pay attention to trends or anything. I just... I go off in my own little world and whatever I want to do, I just kind of go do it. And I've been wanting to do this for so long. This started many, many years ago. And I just finally decided to go, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm done screwing around and tinkering around with the idea. I'm just going to go out and do it. But I'm realizing there's no real manual for it. So everyone who has to do this kind of goes through their own path. And, and going off the grid, I knew it would be difficult, but – the things that are becoming the most difficult, I didn't expect. I kind of did, but I kind of didn't. And I think what what makes it difficult is the fact that you have to do it in stages. You just can't jump right into it and have a house built and have everything up and running in 12 months. I guess you could if you had unlimited resources and sure. had a lot of money. Yeah, but if I your think, name's Gates or Buffett or something like that, you can make that happen, right? Exactly, but I think for all of the rest of us, and other guys I've talked to, because up where I'm at, it's it, there's a lot of uh, your followers are up there, and they're my followers are up there, quite a few of them, and we they they hit me up and we chat about kind of the adventure because we're all kind of doing it. Some are further ahead, some are just starting, and that's kind of the thing is we all realize is you're, it, it's probably a, like a five year plan from the time you kind of make up your mind, and you know you have to sell your place, you have to downsize, and all that, but you have to figure out how to make a living. You know, if you're going to live remotely, if you live too remotely, well, where are you going to work? You know, you're going to have to come up with your own business or you're going to have to live close enough to where you can go and still work a job. Correct. And there's just different ways of doing it. And for me, I think the the hardest part has been trying to figure out the financial end. And because you got it, that's another thing people understand, too, is you got to pay cash. There's no financing for off the grid projects. And if there is, contact me and let me know what it is because I've looked all over the country. It doesn't exist as far as I've been able to find. Because the banks now, if not, you're not tied to a public utility system, that is off the grid. That is, by definition, off the grid. Well, they're not going to finance you because the house is risky, the property is risky, and not only that, it's a very small niche that is going to be interested in that property if you decide to bug out and leave it. So they're going to get stuck with this very difficult property. So basically you have to pay cash for everything or get creative with your financing. And I, I actually documented this whole – I'm documenting the whole thing. I'm getting ready to finish the rough draft, hopefully this week if all goes well, on the first book. And it's kind of a how-to guide and kind of my experiences of how I figured it out. And I'm no expert. I want to make that very clear. I am no off-the-grid expert. I'm not a construction expert. I have enough construction background to know the basics. 
But the reason I'm doing the book too is I get a lot of questions from people of where do I start? It's just like the health world. Everyone's all, I don't even know where to begin. And I went, okay, you know, I'll let me try and answer that. But again, just like health, it's different for everyone. What are your goals? What do you want to do? Do you want to live really remotely like off in Alaska? Do you want to live more off the grid, but still within a close metropolitan area or somewhere in between? And I'm kind of in the in between. You know, I'm kind of remote, but I'm not so far remote to where, you know, I don't have neighbors. I don't, you know, I have neighbors. I can't see them, but I have them. But they're there. Yeah, Yeah. they're there. Um, if, if they, it's amazing sometimes how, how you can have neighbors that you don't see, but yet they're there and they can be not very far. When we lived in Arkansas, I literally had a neighbor across the street. She was a little bit up, but like basically the, the, the south end of her house kind of lined up with the north end of my house directly across the street. We could not see each other just due to the terrain. And you felt like you were completely alone. Yet there was somebody there to keep an eye on stuff for you when you were away. And that was really nice. And that is another really important aspect of it is that I think all of us get this false sense of security. I didn't have it so much because I grew up pretty remote. Um, I grew up a little redneck. I loved your uh, – I was listening to your uh, podcast on guns. Me and you are uh, identical. BB gun at 6, 7, yeah. 22 at age 11, 12, you know, hunting, hunter safety course at age 12, and yeah. Um, but being, having that experience, you know, I kind of grew up in a more, you know, isolated area, not totally isolated, but we get this false sense of security. Once you go remote and off the grid that no one knows where you're at, there's no crime. And I go, "Ah, absolutely not. I mean, it's kind of the opposite. When you move into an area like that, all the people in the surrounding area, five, 10 miles Know where you're at. Know where you're at. Know when you're not there. And, and yep. this, this falls into Spearco's 10% scumbag theory. So, so my basic theory is 10% of society is complete and total dirtbag scumbags. And I don't, I'm totally agnostic to every profession, every faith. So 10% of Christians, 10% of Muslims, 10% of atheists, 10% of priests, 10% of school teachers, 10% of lawyers, maybe a little higher than lawyers, I don't know. 10% of, you know, everybody has the scumbag genetics. And that the thing that keeps us from realizing that, because that's a lot of scumbags, is the scumbag is not completely stupid and they are afraid. They're afraid that someone bigger than them will beat them up. They're afraid that a cop will put them in prison. They're afraid that an armed citizen will shoot them in the head. Uh, they're afraid to get caught. They're afraid to be known to be a scumbag. Because once people know you're a scumbag, life gets harder. So that 10% is repressed by the fact that there's other people out there, the other 90% of us, don't like scumbags. So they look for opportunities to operate when the 90% are not paying attention. And if you have an off-the-grid place in the middle of nowhere, nobody's ever paying attention when you're not there. So at that point, then you have to do things like you have four or five big Anatolian shepherds running around that will eat the scumbags. And that's like the, and like, so then you have to deal with that. Now you have to realize you have weaponized dogs. So when you do want people coming, it's like, so it creates all of these dynamics that if you just have some good solid neighbors, it, it, it's less likely to be a problem. It doesn't mean nobody will break in, but it does mean your next door neighbor might put some bu- a buckshot in them. Well, yeah, and, and not only that, but, you know, it's just like, you, you know, when you live in the in cities or in kind of the suburbs and, and in a neighborhood, you know, you always hear, well, you can't pick your neighbors. Well, guess what remotely? 
you can't pick your neighbors out there yeah, either. Yeah, yeah. So it, those scumbags tend to hang out. <laughs> that 10% tends to hang out more in those areas. Or they're well, more well-known because they're out in the open more. And yeah. with that, the, the first, you know, last year, uh, not this summer, but this summer before when I drilled the well, we got the, the drilling rig up there and big expensive drilling rig because uh, my I'm at the top of the mountain. We had to go through a bunch of granite and everything. So we drag it up there with a dozer and finally get the thing up there with less than, you know, eight hours that night. We get it up there, get it set. I come back the next morning and some dirt bags had come up on a back road into my property and stole stuff off the drilling rig. Hmm. Literally, I mean, I had nothing on the property. There was nothing there. Yeah. We get the drilling rig because they'd been watching me. Well, and you can hear it, you know, if you're, do- you're bringing up with a dozer, you can, oh, yeah, hear, you can it hear it from five, six miles away. And I had a security plan. You know, I'm no yeah. dummy. I mean, I come from a law enforcement and military background. I mean, I had a plan, but I didn't expect to have to implement it so quickly. You know, I thought, oh, you know, there's nothing up here. You know, I don't have anything of value. There's nothing. Um, you know, trees, I did learn, you know, that they poach trees left and right. So they'll come on your property and steal trees. Mm. But, you know, that's. I, I can deal with that. You know, yeah. if you want to steal trees, it's pretty dangerous. It's a good way to get shot. Yeah. But, and you, it's pretty noticeable. Yeah. And, you know, but I didn't have, I instantly would, I had to go out, I had to put fencing up, barbed wire, triple wire, had to dump cameras in. I did all that within like two weeks, had everything, had to get everything up and block roads off because I had two access points. So I had to block both um, and I double blocked them. So I had two different security checkpoints for each road, basically. Mm. I had two blocks. So it made it double difficult for them to get in. It doesn't just make it double difficult. It it it. See, this is what I don't think people understand. Like, people say gates keep honest people out. Well, they also keep dishonest people out because they, they remove excuses. Like, clearly, you know you're not supposed to be here. And and one of the most effective signs I ever saw on a gate, a gate said, you're not lost, you're trespassing. And I belonged there, and it still like had the pit of my stomach sink a little bit <laughs> because well, it removes that excuse, and it's like these people are serious. Well, and that's why I did. I wanted to make sure everything was plainly marked, and you know, on a couple of the gates, they go, "Why do you have you know triple wire on there? They just can walk around it." I go, "Well, it's to send the message that you're not supposed to be here." Yeah. Period. Yeah. You know, that's what barbed wire says. When you put or Constantine wire, when you put something like that up, that without any signs tells someone. I am not supposed to go past this point. And and that means when they do, they can be held accountable for it. They can't claim ignorance. And there may be a dog that bites. There may be a guy with a gun on the other side of it. And I'm a big fan of Brian Black's work and what he says about all these security measures. None of them, it's like health, right? None of them guarantee that you won't have something stolen or damaged. What they do is they buy you time and they increase the odds that you will not be a victim. Exactly. And that, that's the thing I, I want to convey too, because like I get a lot of people ask me questions and they kind of see the off the grid and living remotely as this utopia. Yeah. And it's not. Like I said, you can't live anywhere except for very remote Alaska where there's no one around you. Yeah. Anywhere in the U.S., there's pretty much going to be someone around you somewhere. It's pretty hard now. There's so many of us that it's pretty hard to live totally remotely. You can do it. But you know, for most of us, it's understanding. And that's why I wrote the book, too, is kind of to, to let people know, here's here's what I went through. And not only me, but once I put the security uh, video up on YouTube, people started hitting me up. And, you know, and then they said, hey, man, I had stuff stolen, too, off my property. 
and all the stories started coming in and you start to realize that there's bad people everywhere. And long as you're prepared to deal with that, it's fine. And kind of getting into that mental aspect of you're simplifying your life, but you're not detaching yourself. You're, you still got to be attached somewhat to society. It's not going to get away and, and being prepared and putting this stuff together. You know, it pissed me off. I had to put the fences and do all this because it cost me like four or five grand yeah. of extra time and work yeah. that I didn't want to spend right away. Yeah. But once I did it, I haven't had a problem since. Yep. You know, it, and it I works. have cameras now everywhere. I let people know. And my neighbor found out he snuck up on me this summer, didn't know I was in uh, the middle part of my property working on something. And he snuck up behind me without letting me know. He didn't call me. We yeah. have each other's numbers. And I heard him step on a twig, and I pulled, turned around with my hand on my gun. Yeah. And he looked at me like, oh, shit. I went, whew. <laughs> you know? And he goes, oh, he goes, now i got to remember to warn you before I get up here. And I go, yeah. You know, I, I've warned you. I, I have a weapon on me all the time. Yeah. And if my back's turned to something, I don't know if you're a bear, mountain lion, elk. I don't know what you are coming up behind me. You yeah, know, you know, you're making me realize something I've like put off doing. I should do. We we we've planned on it, and we we haven't. Is we need to put a sign on our front gate that says "Call for Access" and put you know our both of our phone numbers out there, um, because one, it helps with that, and two, it also helps. We we have really stupid stupid mailmen here, uh, and when I say mailmen, I mean everybody: DHL, FedEx, actual mail. Where you 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 know we have the same people every day, and you keep saying, "Leave the packages." outside the gate because the dog if he's outside is going to bite you okay next yep. day there they are opening the gate again and i really don't care when the dog's not out there but i don't like feeling like i have to keep my dog in all day long or at least while i'm you know doing my job so that i can prevent the mailman from being bit and if something needs a signature or whatever it's fine but it's like if it doesn't need a signature just leave it outside the gate it's okay and they just won't do it and i i don't understand it but so I need a sign that says that and a sign that says beware a dog and a sign that says call for access. Because if, if if my dog bites you because you're stupid, my dog's not getting put down. I mean, that, you'll yeah. go down before my dog goes down. Well, and, and that's what I did, too. As soon as I put everything up, I, I bought all my signage. I have everything up. I have my phone number at one access point. Uh, my neighbors have their no number down at another access point that leads into mine. And it is. You have to, to properly mark everything, too, because people are stupid. And not only that, but you have, like my property, a lot of younger kids had rode their ATVs through it for years and years and years. Yeah, there's that. And, you know, kids, if you don't put up the signage, they don't know. They just yeah. know that they've been riding their ATV there for the last 10 years, you know. And and I don't want to have, you know, a kid get hurt or something go wrong because they didn't understand that that's now private property. And I don't want them hurt on my property anyway. They'll roll over on their ATV or get in there, and now I'm liable for it because they didn't know. They're you know you're still liable. Um, you can get sued for anything today. Doesn't matter where you live. Yeah. And that was what I wanted to make sure too. And and no hunting for sure. Yeah, <laughs> you got to put all you that. Bring up. up the kids, and there's two types of people like that. There's the type of people that everybody's always just been able to go there. Nobody, whoever owned it, didn't really care. And they don't know that there's been a change. And then you have people that have like an attitude problem that like, well, my family's hunted this land for, for 20 years. Yep. Well, I'm sorry. I've bought it now and you can't do that anymore. We dealt with that. 
because the place I, I had property in Arkansas was a, a pretty recent development and it was close to hot springs. And there were tons of people that, you know, there was a couple thousand acres out there that it always just, you know, road four wheelers and stuff. And it's like, this land is owned by people who live here now. And they actually had like a really big problem. But what we saw that with was a gate and signage and, You know, we had dogs, the neighbors had dogs, the other, we had like five people after the gate and everybody had dogs that ran loose. And all of a sudden the problem sort of went away. But I had things like somebody still, you know, people like, well, I don't know why you won't let anybody hunt here. Well, first of all, I only have five acres, right? And yeah. I want to be able to hunt my property. So that's not really a two person property for hunting just to begin with. Second of all, somebody stole one of my deer feeders, right? Yeah. I mean, you start stealing people's stuff, then, you know, you, You're not welcome anymore. We, and, and, you know, we, we had it remotely like you do for a while and I'd come up there and there's, you know, beer bottles and stuff, you know, right off my driveway and all. And I was a kid, you know, I remember when we used to go out in the woods to drink so the cops wouldn't catch us or whatever, but I didn't throw garbage on somebody's property. And that's all for everybody out there. And that's kind of why I'm bringing this up that wants to do what you're doing, which is you're developing, a, developing a property, but you're not there. These are all things you have to deal with. Well, and the the odds of you being there in the beginning are slim to none because, like I said, to make that transition from the world you're in today into that takes time. And very few people can just jump from one extreme to the other, get their house built, and live up there. And even with me, I was testing the waters out because I'm more of a nomad. You know, I don't like being in one place at one time you know, for a long period of time. So the goal was to, you know, be able to spend a good part of the year up there because I love that part of the country and I want to explore Canada and more of Alaska and other places. But also, you know, I know it gets cold and my property's hard to access during the deep part of winter mm. in and out and it gets kind of dangerous. So I was like, well, you know, I want to be somewhere else. And that was my, you know, that's, that's what I say. And that's specific to me and what I want to do. I want to go warmer places during the winter. And go to different areas and, and I'm getting, I want to get into gold panning and doing some other stuff. So I had to make the property work for me. But if I could go back, I would have put the security stuff up first. Sure. That would have been the first thing I would have done right after I bought. I would have made sure I had my fences in place and done that. But you're right. You know, people don't, I think that was the message someone was trying to send me to when they stole this stuff off the, the drilling rig. Because all they took were the tire chains and the tie-down straps. Mm. What are you going to do with that? I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're not Pocket. worth a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, the strap on it's like, what, 40 bucks? I mean, Yeah, I but guess. it's 40 bucks. I mean, that's that's exactly what – I can grab it. I can get it fast. I can get out of here. I know I can flip it. Done. That's, yeah, that's, it was, that's why people steal, like, our house here while it was for sale. The guy wasn't living here. And there's an air conditioning, there's two air conditioning units and one is on the, the west side of the house. And they didn't steal the air conditioning unit that was worth a couple thousand dollars. They yanked the copper out of it that was worth 80 bucks at a scrapyard. Yeah. Because well, they could. And it's also tweaker nation. You know, the more remote you get, and this is part of my law enforcement experience too. And not only that, but where I grew up, the more remote you get, the more meth heads you get. Period. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to hear any bullshit from anyone going, oh, Gary, you're really, you know, stereotyping. And No, I'm telling you, <laughs> from my experience, I've been to a lot of remote parts of the country. And where I grew up, meth heads follow remote, more remote parts. You're going to find them. And they have sticky fingers. They steal everything. 
And it doesn't matter. You're right. It doesn't matter what it is. If they can peel a piece of aluminum off your place, they're going to do it. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and that's why the security is so important in the beginning. And like I said, I was a little lackadaisical with that. And if I could take it all back and tell anyone, the first thing you do is you put up, you know, put up your fencing and have a remote camera. And what I've learned too is the, the game cameras work the best. Um, far as, cause you can't, they're, they're with a battery power source. You can buy these really strong steel cases yep. that you can lag bolt right into a wall, a tree, whatever. And if someone wants to go pick that thing, they're going to struggle. And I guarantee tweakers, they don't like work. That's no, why they're no. tweakers and they live in a debilitated trailer. Yeah. They don't want to have to fight for it. And yeah, I have, you know, cameras pointing at cameras, triangulation. Yeah. You know, you make sure that as they're fighting that camera, the other camera is recording them fighting with the camera yeah. the whole time. Yeah, and, we had issues with that, too, that, that solved problems for us. They weren't quite tweakers. We had, like, the area we were living in was, like, about a couple thousand acres, and about half of it had been developed, and the other half was slowly being, as people would buy a lot, they'd have contractors uh, in there and things like that. And what was happening is, you know, you're rural. You don't just have the curb. You throw all your garbage in a giant pile. You have a bin that's for you that you pay for that a private refuse company comes and takes. And if you want two bins, you pay twice as much. So all of these guys that were down the bottom of the mountain that were doing work, instead of wanting to take their garbage home, at the end of the shifts were bringing their garbage up and throwing it in our garbage cans. So I go down there and I find the foreman and I talk to them. Oh, my guys are not doing that. So the next day I go down with a tablet with an MMC card plugged into it from a deer camera and go, well, there's your guys dumping garbage. There's your guys dumping garbage. There's your guys jumping garbage. And instead of being a dick and calling the police, it's like, how about you guys stop using our facilities and we don't call the police? And then the problem goes away. And it's better to take care of it that way. And what I made clear, too, to a lot of my neighbors is that, hey, A, I told my background, a lot of people try and hide and I went, no, my background, I'm going to tell them, yeah. you know, I'm really proficient with firearms. <laughs> I'm a really good shot. Yeah. And I'll guarantee I'll see you before you probably see me. Yeah. So let's not play these stupid little games. If you want to go rip shit off, go rip it off from someone else. I'm yeah. not the guy. Yeah. And it's the wrong place. This is the wrong place. And people go, well, you're kind of being kind of a kind of a dickhead, right? And I'm going, well, no, it's just I have to let them know that. I'm not the guy. I'm just not the place to be, you know, and if you're on I my say we were that overt, but we were kind of in that vein when we moved up yeah. in Arkansas. And I have to say, we had five neighbors behind the fence and they all loved it. And they all loved that we were the first house down by the gate. Um, there was a night, there's a car sitting out at our gate with the lights on at like 1130 at night on like a Thursday night. This doesn't make sense. Everybody that, that would be coming up there that would know someone would have called someone to come open the gate. So I throw my carbine on. I grab the German Shepherd. And we don't go walking down the driveway in the lights. We go through the woods. We come up behind them. And I hit them with a tack light. And I've got a gun. I've got a dog growling from the belly. And I've got a light in their eyes where they really can't see very well. And I ask them who they are. And they say, you know, we're so-and-so. And I'm like, well, who are you looking for? And they're like, we're looking for Perryman, which is the last name of my neighbors at the top of the hill. And I'm like... Perryman, because that's like, that, you don't say that. You wouldn't come up to my you know, place and, and you don't know who I am and you're looking for me and you'd say, I'm looking for Spearco. You'd say, I'm looking for Jack Spearco. Right? You wouldn't yeah. just throw out a last name. And anybody can find a last name from a variety of things, like the mailbox at the bottom of the hill. 
So I'm like, what Perryman? They don't know. And they haven't seen him for a while, but they know he lives out here somewhere and they're looking for him. And I'm like, no, y'all need to turn around and effing leave. And I didn't say effing. And uh, they're like, well, can you open the gate so that we can turn around? It's dark here. I'm like, you got here, you can get out of here. And I just kind of disappeared back in the woods and I wait back in the woods. And they did like a 99 point turn to get turned around and they leave. And then I called the neighbor and I'm like, I hope I wasn't an ass to the wrong people. I don't know if these were somebody from your church or nothing. And the the guy, his first name was Scott, tells me, you know what? Uh, I haven't seen my, my brother in 13 years. And he's a meth dealer. Yep. That's And he lives somewhere kind of out the other mountain. That's probably who they were looking for. And they were overjoyed that I'm not some idiot that would just open the gate and let them up there. And that, you know one thing, they're not coming back. They're not coming back to that place. That was a clear sign that this is not the Perryman you seek. And we had one neighbor that didn't like that, and he was the asshole. So I don't want him to like it. I'm not trying to make assholes happy. I'm trying to make the majority of people who aren't assholes happy. Yeah, and, and you know, that's the thing, too, is you're, you're going to have to at least get along somewhat with your neighbors because you're remote. Not only that, but you help each other out. And out there, you are your security system. I mean, you are the police force. By the time the police department gets there, you know, calling them, you know, it, everything's long done at that yeah. point. Yeah. So you kind of it, it's one of those, you know, kind of fits into our whole mindset of survivalist mindset of you are your first responder. So that's why your security, you have to take it even more, make it more important than if you are, you know, in a, in an urban area or living in a city. Because now, you know, the odds of anyone helping you besides your neighbor are slim to none. You are it. And that's why I like the game cameras the way they are now. Cause you don't, they do have the SIM cards that you can use, but they run on cellular networks. Yeah. And now, uh, uh, Bushnell has their own network. They did this last year. So they own the network that they use, even though it's through, I'm sure, AT&T or Verizon or someone. It's one of the two, I guarantee you. <laughs> oh, I guarantee it. Yeah. And But what it does is it comes now, the technology, it comes straight to your smartphone, laptop, whatever. Wow. So once that thing triggers, instantly my cameras are sending feeds to my phone. So I know right away. And they go for a good distance now to where I'll pick up people, uh, my contractors at the bottom of the hill driving up. And I'll get clear pictures, license plate pictures, get everything. And and that's why I like those is because they don't rely on a power source and they don't rely on an internet connection. What's their what's their longevity on a set of batteries? Because like now that they have this I didn't know they had this out of technology. Like I'm ready to upgrade my security here immediately now that you've said this. And, and that's what people have found. I had to do a ton of research and it took me a while to figure all this stuff out. They're pricey. These cameras are not cheap. They're about 500 bucks a piece. Okay. But the battery life, when I called Bushnell, because I talked to him and asked him a bazillion questions, and and they told me, well, you know, maybe six months. Wow. I now have had my set of batteries in there for 14 months. They're still full of charge, but what I did is I bought the uh, lithium uh, camera batteries. And it takes, I want to say that camera takes 12 batteries, 12 double A's, maybe 16. takes a lot of batteries. I still have full bars, power, after 14 months on one of the cameras, on the very first one I had. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, 
and I'm going to test it. I'm going to run these batteries for as long as I can to see how long they go. But the cameras work really, really well. Um, and that's a great thing about the technology because one of the biggest things for off the gridders and guys I've talked to for security is that you have to have an internet connection. Well, if you're off the grid, the odds of you having a reliable internet connection are almost zero. You know, I don't have any utilities up there. I can't get cable TV. I can't get internet. I'm off the grid. And so for me to have internet, I have to use satellite internet. Well, satellite internet's buggy. It, it drops. It'll drop out. And when it drops out, it drops the router out. And then you have no connection. And then you have to physically be there to reboot it. So if you're gone and that drops on you, now your whole security system's toast. You got nothing. You're blanked out. And that's what I like about these cameras, and I found them to be highly reliable. I've actually never had one of them drop out yet. And that's the beauty part of them is they just run. And if one goes down with a redundancy and not tied to Internet, well, all the other ones still work. Yeah, yeah. And they run independently in that sense. They don't run on a network. So they you can use them together through the app. You'll see all your cameras and you can manage each one through the app and the software. It's they're really cool. That's pretty badass. That really. They're just is. the downside is they're pricey. Um, yeah. They're expensive, but I use mine for dual purpose. It's yeah. a game camera and it's a security camera. Yeah, very so, cool, man. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the the big pieces, and I'm um, I wrote that in the book. But probably the biggest thing, and I'm sure you've dealt with this, is uh, contractors dealing yeah. with contractors. Just painful. Oh my god. Yeah, it's 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 it seems like no one ever does what they say they're going to do, and even if they do, they never do it in the time that they 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 quote. And when something breaks, it's not their fault, and they need more budget to get something done. That's not what bothers me. What bothers me is when you, you've paid them whatever they said they needed, you've bought whatever materials they said they needed, and they said they're going to do it in a week, and three weeks later, it's not done, and you're just wondering what the hell is going on. Well, and that ended up being a big section in my book because. Through my previous things that I've done in life, I've owned small apartment complexes, fourplexes, nothing huge, not rich. But I've owned – this is the third house I've had built. And one was a, a track house, one was a custom, and then this one's remote and technically custom. And I've been dealing with contractors for almost 20 years. And I thought I had – you know, I thought I had them wired, you know. I, but that's one of the things I wanted to talk to – People looking into this as well, one of the biggest problems you're going to run into is dealing with contractors off the grid because, first of all, it's a specialty project. I thought, you know, these guys will tell you anything. I mean, they're just habitual liars. And I know there's contractors that listen to this show. If you're offended, you're a crappy contractor. If you're not offended, you're probably a good one. That's how I look at it, you know. And the hardest part is trying to find someone reliable up there to help you because you can't do this stuff on your own. You, no. you can't. You can, if you have a construction background and that's what you do for a living, maybe. Yeah. But more than likely, you're going to have to have someone else help you do it. Well, what you're doing is you're acting as your own general contractor. And the problem with that is a good general contractor is on site every day. That doesn't mean they're on site all day long every day. Because if you have to be on, on site all day long every day, you don't have good subcontractors. But if, if, and this is how you know when you, when you decide, okay, I'm going to hire a general to take care of the job for me. The, the, the first day that they don't show up at least one time, you have the wrong general contractor. So when you're your own general contractor, that's great until you're remote and you can't be there every day of a job. And, and now you're trying to do a job with basically one arm tied behind your back because 
if I'm a sub and, and I'm got, I've got my ass in a sling because I've underbid a job or because uh, something's gone wrong or whatever, like, in other words, every day of my life, the guy that I can get away BSing a little bit until, and it doesn't necessarily mean I want to do it, but I feel like I have to. Whoever the path of least resistance is, that's who's going on the back shelf. And since you're not there, I know I can get away with it. Exactly. And I just had a long talk. And that's what I mean. I had to write a chapter, long chapter in the book of dealing with contractors because this last one duped me pretty good. Um, I've dealt with, I've fired a lot of contractors in my life on many projects. I've dealt with, you know, all of them. And this guy was pretty slick. And I realized I went, you know what? I've got to write a chapter and I'm going to do a video on it, kind of how to deal with these guys. But for people who are going off the grid, it's going to be the biggest stumbling block because more than likely you're going to be moving to an area you're not really familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. And and then uh, also you're going to have, you know, just people you don't know. It's that's the hardest part is you're used to dealing with people that you know and referred. Well, this guy was even referred to me through a highly good source, the county. <laughs> But they didn't know him; they just knew some of his work. They didn't know the guy personally. They were doing me a favor. I thought no problem, and I, I'm I was I'm the general on this. I'm the you know I'm running the project, but I was busy. I'm running a business. I'm in between. I'm trying to do everything. I couldn't watch the guy 24 hours a day. And with that, even with my background, deal with this guy. Guy screwed me over, and I had to terminate him like quickly. Yeah, I caught on what was going on, and I went, oh no, and I I just the red flag started popping up. And I went, okay, and that's one thing I tell people. If you get a bad gut feeling that something's going wrong, don't hesitate. Because yeah. if you drag these guys on, if I would have let him do what he was going to do, he was going to bilk me for probably another 50K of free money if yeah. I would have let him roll. Yeah. And I mean 50K of pure profit for him. Yeah, because he, he wasn't going to do anything. And that's that's what happens. And exactly. That's why when you when you know you have a problem, sever the relationship immediately. And people say, well, I'm all – like the guy already owes me $2,000 worth of work. Well, he's going to owe you $10,000 worth of work or more if you keep going this way. Because – and when you know that is when, when you already have money into a guy that hasn't put it – brought it back to you yet and they want more money, no. No, 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 no. And, yeah. and and I mean no. And what I mean is they better come to par with whatever you've advanced them, their their deposit or whatever, before they get another penny. And it has to be every time because what happens is, and again, it's not necessarily that the person wants to be an asshole. They they get made into an asshole by circumstance. They underbid jobs. They take too many jobs, whatever it is, and they start playing Ponzi. Right to finish job A, I need more money from job B that I'm also not done with yet. With but that guy seems like he has deeper pockets, so I'll go over there and I'll get more money out of that job. I'll use that money to finish this job, and then I'll go back and finish that job. Except I won't have the money because now I've spent it, so I have to find a third mark. And if if, if you're the guy with that he thinks of with the deep pockets, you always end up with the hot potato. You always end up being the guy. That he keeps coming back for a little bit more from, or he can never get caught back up and get your job done. And, and I've been through that with contractors, and I've gotten to be a freaking Nazi with them now. Like, and I need a little bit more money. I need the freaking work you already bid done, and then we can talk about more money or get out of my house. Well, and with that, these the way the industry works, and I've dealt with these guys so much. And like I said, I thought, but this guy sold me a whole song and dance. I mean, and he actually hit up another one of mine and your followers. We didn't know it. 
mm-hmm. but he was actually bidding another guy's job and he started, he contacted me and said, Hey, are you using so and so? And I went, yeah, but I just terminate him. Yeah. Why? And he goes, yeah. he goes, Oh, I'm using him. And I called him up. No, you don't. <laughs> and he did. He started reading. He goes, he did this, this and this and this. And I went, exactly. So he was running the same scheme on us and we're both prior law enforcement. Yeah. So this guy, and that's another thing with contractors, these guys are pretty bold because they know that as the consumer, you're screwed because they can hold you hostage. They can put liens on your property. They can do anything they want. And that's where you have to be so careful with these guys. And I'm trying to decide how far I want to take this with this guy because yeah. he pissed me off really bad. And he did some pretty unscrupulous things. I mean, stole all the materials. I mean, all kinds of stuff. The yeah. typical and this is very typical is contractors will, will, will buy more materials than they need and then they steal the rest. And that's how most of these guys build their houses. Almost every contractor's house like that, their house is built off other people's money. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened with the guy that did my kitchen. In the end, he would, he basically said, well, you know, we're going to do things this way and it'll get to it when I get to it because you, and he basically said, you can't afford to sue me. Yep. And, and my response was, Apparently, you're not familiar with the Tarrant County uh, small claims court system because I can totally afford to sue you because it takes $200 to sue you. Yep. And and then what, what really got him was – and then it was still kind of like a stalemate. And I'm like, no, what's going to happen is you're going to come here and you're going to have to the end of the week to get this done. And I hate to be this dirty with somebody, but at a point where you've got six grand of my money and I don't have my work done, I'll do it. And I said, you know, I noticed you're an Arizona corporation. I noticed that I should have checked into you deeper, but since you came through a referral, I didn't. You have lots of complaints, and you've done lots of work in Texas. I'm wondering when the last time is you filed taxes with Arizona. Interesting. And I, there, I, there, there was silence. I Dead is, silence. And then yeah. it was, I'll be there Monday, I'll make it right. And And, and I think... <laughs> Me and you both have, and anyone who's dealt with contractors, we, we all have the same stories. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. and it, and same thing for me. I didn't do my, as much due diligence as I should have looking into the background of this guy. Once I started digging, yeah, same all thing. Yeah, kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, I found his company name didn't exist in the state that he said it did. He was registered in another state. And then I went, that just so happened to not have state income tax. And I went, oh, okay. The criminal investigator hat comes on. I go, now I know what you're doing, and now I'm going to trace everything. Now I know exactly what you're up to. And I had to write a 13-page letter, out, basically as a report of investigation, because the guy kept coming back to me for money. And after I terminated him, said, don't ever talk to me again, and and just guy kept hitting me and hitting me. I went, here's the deal. <laughs> you contact me one more time, I'm going to file a harassment charge against you. That's how it's going to go. Stop. And... He finally stopped, but I think the lesson people need to learn is even people like me and you, these guys, it's a different breed. I grew up with guys who are now contractors. Here's the common kind of, you know, demographic. I don't want to pigeonhole them too much, but it's the guy who didn't get through high school. Nothing wrong with it. Not, not that everyone does get through high school. That's bad. But this is a typical thing. They flunked every class because they never showed up. They never did anything. They couldn't hold a job. They never had gas money. You know, it's this guy that never did anything. And the only job he could get was being a laborer. So, you know, in, in the labor field, I've been a laborer. 
there's not a whole high threshold <laughs> to get a labor job. If you can fill out the application or show up, you get the job, right? And these guys just, I hate to be this way and be so hard on them, but it's like this magnet for dirtbags. And they all kind of come to the construction field and they all act the same way. And I've heard the same ploy over and over and over. They all have the same lines. They all use the same methods. And it's frustrating. And after I started and I, I was getting frustrated with it, I started getting hit up by followers and people going, oh, man, I, here's my story. Yeah. You know, and everyone, and it, you start hearing it time and time again. And what is the answer on how to deal with them? <laughs> you can babysit them and watch them 24-7. Um, usually that's not possible. But there's no magic answer. It's mostly get it in writing. But even though if it's in writing, these guys usually don't care. Yeah, they could they, they could give a crap, but don't give them any money up front. A good contractor, if he has, you know, a good legitimate business, has credit lines through all of his sources. Correct. You know, never give them more than money than they're at, you know, than what yeah. they've done. Because yeah. if anyone comes back to you and goes, hey, I need a 10 grand for the work I'm about to do or planning to do in the next two weeks. Absolutely not. No. And I'll tell you what I what I'll do, what I will do is I will fund the purchase of materials, but not through the contractor. If you can't bring the materials to me, and I'll even do that too. Like a contractor will say, well, I'll need $5,000 for these materials. Great. I'll pay you for them the minute they're here. Yeah. Uh, well, see, I needed to, no, 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 no. I will pay you for them the minute they're here. Well, I can't do that. Great. Give me the bill of materials. I'll call up a supplier. I'll have them delivered. And then you can come here and use them to do your job, right? Yep. Well, I can get a better price than you. I'm not worried about that. Bid the labor alone. I'll buy the materials. The materials will be here. And if they don't want to do business that way, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. Because there are times when a guy's running a little thin on his credit line or whatever. That doesn't mean he's going to go out of business or whatever. But see, the way I look at that, okay, we've you've bid the job. You've done a takeoff on the materials. I've looked at the takeoff. That's the materials we need to get the job. I agree with that. If I buy the materials and you fall flat on your face, I can just get somebody else to do it. If I'm yeah, giving exactly. you money and my material's not here, I got a problem. Well, and and this guy, he was like, there was 30-day billings, which was a long period for me because I only had about four to six weeks of work. That was yeah. it. It should have been done in four weeks. Yeah. And, you know, by the time I got the last bill, you know where this went. Yeah. It just so happened to be three times what it should have been. Of course. You know, of course. And I had no updates. There was supposed to be weekly updates, which also I recommend a good contractor who has their act together. If you go, hey, I'm paying cash, so I need you to give me an update weekly so I know budgetarily where I'm at. Yeah. They'll do it. If they're organized, they can do it. Unfortunately, yeah. the things we're telling people are really hard to find. It's going to take you a while. It's going to take you some time to find the right guy for the right job and also get a no hire bid. So what it says is if they their bid is is concrete, it can go no higher than this bid. Yeah, yeah. It, it, so that is the clause. The problem I have found with that is a guy, if he gets pinched and in a bind, will just stop the work. He'll yeah. hit that threshold and you'll never see him again. He'll yep. just bail. So there's no perfect way. It's just like anything in life. You got to find a guy that 
is screw you know has scruples and has good morals and he's known in the community and he doesn't want to burn those bridges and with that you got to be a little patient because some of these guys may not be the best you know have the best skills they know certain projects they do decks you know maybe they do you know siding so you're going to have to be a little lenient with them if they don't know how to do a job it's it's a tough one and there's no I wish I had a perfect answer for it, but one of them is learn how to do it yourself. Learn how to do it yourself. Even if you don't do it. See, that's what I've always found. That like if I'm acting as my own general and I know the basics of how to do the job and I'm, maybe I'm hiring a contractor because I could do it, but I want the quality better, right? Yeah. Or I don't have the time yeah. to do it. If I know how to do that job, I know the second I'm being bullshitted. I know the absolute millisecond I'm being bullshitted. And what happens is you call them on their bullshit And they either go, okay, this is a client I can't bullshit. I want the money. I want the job. And I'm going to get it done. And I'm just not going to use my bullshit powers here. Or they walk. And either's fine as long as they don't have my money. Because now all I've got is an inconvenience. I don't have a financial loss. Well, and, and that's the thing, too. I, I had a couple people hit me up and say, you know, why didn't you just do all the work yourself? And I'm like, <laughs> no. I was all, no. yeah, I would love to have done it all myself. But first of all, Even though it's an off-the-grid house and it's usually going to be smaller, it's hard to build. I mean, it's just like a norm. It's better than a normal house because you're going to build it better than a track home. So you're going to not be using two by four construction more than likely. It's going to be two by six, two by eight. It's going to be different. And mine, I let him talk me into a product that I wasn't familiar with. And that's another thing is don't let them change your plans. If you've got, and I came in, I had my plans all done had everything how I wanted it, and I let him talk me into a different material. It's a good material, but what it did is it put him in power again because I didn't know how to work with it. You know, I know stick construction. I know how framing works. I know how floor joists work. I know the basics. But once he got into this specialized product, I was like, uh-oh. Yeah. I don't – and it's a product that you can't work with by yourself. You need multiple people to work with it. And I was like, that's another thing. Don't let them, because that's a, a ploy of theirs, and I realized that's what he was doing. It was twofold. He was pigeonholing me to where he knew that I wasn't going to be able to help with the construction, because now I couldn't help him out with that kind of material. Second is I heard later on his plans are to build a house of his own, just so happens to be using that material. And all my material went missing. I have no extra material whatsoever. Mm. So he had two, and that's how these guys think. You know, he was going, okay, I'm going to order more than I need. And so I'll take the extra to build my house. And then also I'm guaranteeing that I've got this guy. Because now if I don't do the construction all the way with this product, I leave him hanging. He was the only guy in the area that used that product. There was no one. So that was another mistake I made is letting, I, even though I really like the product. Yeah. If I could take it back, I probably would have stuck with the stick construction, which I originally intended. Well, and I mean, the other thing is like it's the it's the whole exclusivity thing, right? So that that's that's always a bad thing. When I well, I'm the only sort like because that's a selling point people will use. We're the only qualified contractor to do this job in your area. Oh, and oh. it was for states. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> it wasn't for just my area. I mean, he was the only guy for states because yeah. his product. It. it, it And the selling point was, well, Gary, you know, it's it's it costs you just the same amount because there's not as much labor involved as with stick construction because you got all the insulation layers, you got this, you got that. And I went, sounds great, okay. 
but in the end, of course, it cost more than the stick construction. And then, you know, the whole game started and then the subs started ripping me off and he wasn't giving me bids on the subs. And that's another thing is don't let these guys just bring in subs and start just billing you through their company. Because I even told him, I went, you don't bring subs up here that I haven't scrutinized and I don't know who they are. And I need a bid. I need a bid yeah. from these guys. And he's all, huh? No, they work for me, not you. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. Hold on a second here. And that's when I knew things were going wrong. Yeah. And I, I should have cut it off a little earlier, but I had to get the work out of the guy. And this is a bad way to go. I would not recommend doing this like we talked about before. But I had to get more work out of the guy to get it to a level where I could take it over again. Well, no, that happens. That's that's yeah. that's when there's a time where you actually have to work through the pain. Um, that said, we we've bit, beat that up pretty much and kind of probably turned people oh, yeah. off doing this. So let's talk a little bit as we wrap up about simplicity because that once all this grief's done with, that's what you're trying to bring into your life here, right? Is simplicity. Can we talk about what that looks like and why that's a positive thing health wise? Oh yeah. And, and I don't want people to think that, you know, we just beat up a subject and all this negativity. It's just contractors in general. And I just want to warn people that you're going to have to deal with contractors. I mean, it's just part of the deal and you're in a more remote area. So you got to think it through. It just takes a little more planning, but the payoff is huge. You know, cause now I won't have a power bill. I don't have, I won't have a water bill. You know, I'm completely off the grid. So, you know, I'm controlling my power sources, my water sources. And, and with that, you know, you have to, in order to get to this step, you have to simplify your life. So I had to simplify from the beginning because you got to get rid of all your crap, you know, cause you're going to be in between and your whole goal is to bring things more consolidated. So you're living in a smaller space. You're living further away. And in the end, by paying cash and doing this in bits and pieces, guess what? You don't have a loan. So now you own your property. You may, I'm doing some creative financing, some equity line and running, you know, um, you know, uh, zero interest checks on my credit, credit cards for like 12 months. You can do stuff like that. But the simplicity in the end too is, you know, you're, you're making the life you want. You're in charge of it, and it sounds painful, and it sounds hard, and it is. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, that's anything in life. You know, I would much rather put in this pain and hard work for the next couple years, and in the end, I have a great house, beautiful location, all paid for, and my utilities are free. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, definitely. I think that that that's like worth working to get there. It really is. And what are kind of your plans once it's done? I mean, you've said you like kind of traveling around and stuff like that. So you're you're probably, you know, not going to uh to to be up there 365 days a year. So what what does your lifestyle look like when you've got it done uh and you don't need to be working on it all the time, but are you going to go somewhat nomadic? Yeah, and, and I've documented, I, I've been living in my travel trailer for the last year and a half now. Um, well, actually, I'm on travel trailer number two. Okay. I start off with a very simplified version, small one in the beginning, make sure I liked it. And uh, it was a good, and that was a good step too. And that's what I wrote right in the book about how to take this in steps. And if you're thinking about going off the grid, I think that getting into a travel trailer before you do it is a good idea. Yeah, because it kind of gives you the concept. And we talked about the teeny home home movement. What a joke! Don't get sucked into that thing. Do not. 
and I, oh God, people gave me grief. A couple people. Oh, I got it too. The last time oh. I talked about it, they got so mad at me, and I'm like, I'm just, I, I, you know, I think the tiny house idea is a great idea. I think doing it on a trailer as a workaround, I guess, works with some people, but I personally don't think it's a good investment. That's all I can say. Yeah, and I got a guy that said, "Hey, I did it for like five grand, and it was great." I went, "Yeah, because you did the whole project yourself." Yeah. That is not going to be the norm. Um, the norm is people are going to go to these teeny home outfits. I actually just priced one when he kind of got on me, and I went, okay, I need to come up with a good reply. So I built one on a, a well-known website that these that's what these guys do. For the same size travel trailer as I own, it was $70,000 plus dollars for a 24-foot teeny home. And uh, Yeah. At my trailer last year, I bought a, a year uh, earlier model. For $16,900 brand new. Yeah. Brand new. Brand new. Fully warranted. No pooping in a bucket. Full plumbing. The whole bit. You know, it's a normal. These are built to live in and travel around in. And that's why I liked it too is I, I kind of had this plan of I knew that I was going to have to transition. And I wanted to live up there too. And if I have the property, but I can't live on it because I can't camp on it for six, seven months. I mean, that's pretty hard to do. I could, but... <laughs> It's not going to be very enjoyable. Um, so I bought the trailer. So I live in the trailer in between, and I live down in an RV park that's not too far from where my property is. It's about 10 miles, 5, 10 miles away. And I can actually see my property from the lake I'm on. I can literally stand on the shore, and I can see my property. Oh, wow. So it's pretty cool, and it worked out. But that was my plan, too. I went, you know, I, I, I'm trying to develop this mobile lifestyle. I run my business uh, remotely now. Um, I have a company or people that ship for me that I worked out a deal with. So that way I can kind of do my thing, but that's how I like it. That's how I want to do it. Cause you know, winter, I'm a Californian man. I don't do well with cold weather all the time. So I'm like, maybe I'll have to ease into it and maybe <laughs> go down during the winters for the first couple years, get used to it. But also I want to deer hunt and elk hunt. Cause that's why I bought the property too. I have plenty of deer and elk. And to do that, I gotta stay during the winter, um, for at least part of it. So for me, it's more of the remote lifestyle because it's kind of a dream of mine. You know, it's not for everyone. No, it's not. If I was single, it probably would be for me. As a happily married man, extremely happy. Yes, honey, extremely happy if you're listening to this episode <laughs> today. Uh, I really don't think that fits. I think what fits us is, you know, taking two-week sabbaticals, um, which that – see, there's the other thing. Like, it's always about do the economics work to the situation. Is there nobody out there that a tiny house on wheels works for? Absolutely not. There are people. But, like, an RV works great for you. Does it make any sense for me to buy an RV if my goal is to get away for two weeks, uh, a year, twice a year? And the answer is effing no. No way. I can rent a sick cabin – for two weeks for two RV payments. And, and it just doesn't make sense. Oh, and then I'm a business owner and I'm going out in the woods and I do survival stuff. So now it became a business trip and I can write it off. And it, it, instead of having a depreciating RV, it, it just doesn't make any sense for us, but yet it makes perfect sense for you. So I think like, so tiny house people that are pissed at us, you have to adapt it to your unique situation. But one of the cases you'll love this, a guy tried to make to me is it was safer no, right. God so no. a, 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 a house on a trailer is safer in bad weather 
than an RV on a trail. I'm like, if you have the kind of bad weather I'm worried about, you're dead either way. It's not yeah. like both of them are just not safe. Well, and, and with the, the teeny homes too, my biggest problem with them is they're really heavy. Really heavy, yeah. So most of them are over 10,000 pounds. And 10,000 pounds on a rolling chassis is a lot of weight. That's a very, very large uh, travel trailer. That's a big one with three pop-outs, you know, the big coachman. Those, that's that type of and, and those will roll much nicer for you. They're designed to do that. They're, they're, they're like, when they're built, they're built for the purpose of going on the road. I think the tiny house on wheels works this way. It's more for a guy like you. You pull it into your place up there and you live there and yeah. you stay there. And the only reason it's on wheels is because some dumbass in government wrote a code that requires it and it's really not for moving around. But the upside is if you do decide, you know what, I want to buy a different piece of land. It's, it, and then if you're smart, you hire a trucking company to move that sucker for you and they're insured and they're bonded. If they screw something up, it's paid for. And you don't freaking do it yourself. You just don't because, you know, I, I was in construction for a pretty big part of my life. I pulled heavy equipment around on low boys and things like that with, you know, trucks like I drive today, F-350, you know, level pickup trucks. You can do it. It's not fun. It's no. pushing what the truck really can do. If you have a fifth-wheel travel trailer set over the wheels – Yeah, but a tiny house, the desires of the design will always exceed the desires for mobility, and they're not well distributed with weight. They don't, and you always see it like the professionals doing it in like tiny house nation and all. What always happens? Tires blow out, the damn thing near falls over, you know, and when they get it into place, you're thinking, yeah, I want to see those people move that thing. Yeah, because they don't move it themselves. They do it. And that's a perfect example of a fifth wheel and a travel truck, two different things. Yeah. Those are different animals. And the, the fifth wheel tows completely differently because the fifth wheel attachment, where your gooseneck goes, is actually inside your bed over your axles yeah. as opposed to on a tow hitch for a travel trailer. And that's how these teeny homes are towed. You're towing 10,000 pounds plus on a, on a on tow hitch. On your bumper. Or on oh. your pinnel hitch, right? Man. Yeah, hopefully you're dumb, not dumb enough to do it on your bumper. But what I mean by on your bumper is in that in that weight distribution, distribution model. Yeah, and the odds of you, you will have to have a, a Ford F-350 to tow it. Yeah. You know, a normal F-150, which should tow almost any travel trailer, is not going to be able to tow that no. safely by any stretch, maybe a short distance. And with that, you know, now you're going to have to, you're going to tow it anywhere decent distance. You're going to have to have the anti-sway bars on yeah. that thing. And I've never seen any of that on. They just and, and there, there's the a edge. wind resistance issue there because I had a, a 15 a Dodge 1500 so like an F150 equivalent. Yeah. Um V8, good truck until this recent accident where some idiot came into my lane. It was a great truck. And we had a pretty small travel truck. I think it weighed about 7,000 pounds, totally within the towing capacity of that uh vehicle, but it was really high. And the wind resistance of that truck You know, you would, you'd actually feel it going on a slight downhill once you got up into like the 65, 70 mile an hour range just from the amount of wind resistance. Well, tiny homes are really not aerodynamically designed. And top heavy. And they're top heavy. I mean, so like, I, I just, again, I, we should stop beating up on it, but. Well, no, it's just for safety factors though that, yeah. that people understand. And, and I bought, uh, a, a, a ultralight travel trailer. I have a, I have a full size Tundra. I mean, it's big enough to tow it, got plenty of towing capacity for it. Yeah. 
But I have learned over towing stuff. I'm, I haven't towed a ton of stuff, but I've towed enough over my life that the lighter trailer, it mine's a little over 4,000 pounds and it's low profile. And I picked it for that because I knew I was probably going to be towing it long distances. Sure. And when you hit wind, there is no bigger pucker factor oh, yeah. than having a, 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 a heavy, top heavy trailer. If you have one, you literally will think you're going to die. Cause it, yeah. you feel, it feels every gust of wind like it's going to tip you right over. And that's why I went with this type. And, you know, that's what you have to figure out. What, what are your goals? I mean, for me, people go, well, why don't you just tow the trailer up and live at it at your property? Well, I can't tow it up there. My roads are too rough and I have a, a switchback that I can't make any corners in. So to get the travel trailer up there, I'd probably have to use a bulldozer to get it up there. And then after that, I can't get it back down. And that's the reason why I'm not living in it. But if you have flatter land, that's the perfect option is to take your travel trailer there, live in it while you're there. And that way, as you build, you're in no rush. You know, you can build as you want. And that's what I mean. It's kind of this whole there's no roadmap. It's a planning issue. And I think that's what I've learned in my area, because there's a lot of people who have tried to live more remotely where I'm at, especially from California, who have given Californians a completely, well, bad name and well-deserved. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, because they go up there with no plan. You know, they got their five series BMW wearing their bedazzled uh, fitted jeans, you know, got their poodle and they get up there and they can't figure out why it's their plan isn't working. Well, they never had one. You know, it's like you're trying to live more remote, live in a cabin and you're not prepared whatsoever for it. And I think that's for me. Where I was lucky is I'd lived remotely before, you know, I was I an expert that I know, but I kind of knew what to expect a little bit, not wholly. I'm learning every day as I go through this. But that's the thing is, is to come up and figure out where you want to live, come up with a good plan and don't put yourself in, put yourself in a corner. That was my biggest thing. I went, I do not want to have this go completely south on me. And all of a sudden I'm in panic mode and I'm like, what am I going to do? So that's why, you know, I try and reiterate, just take your time, you know, plan it through, do your due diligence, take it in steps, don't rush into it because it is a totally different lifestyle, completely different than what you've been doing before. Absolutely. So what's next for Gary Collins, man? What are your future projects and announcements? Oh, gosh. Um, probably the biggest right now is trying to get that book out. Um, cause a lot of people have been asking a lot of questions and I know a lot of people want me to get that thing out and, like I said, it's, it's a how to, but it's not an expert book. You know, it's not, Hey, I know this better than anyone. It's more of, well, this is what I did. And this is kind of what I found worked. That's all, you know, and it's just kind of outlining the first phase of my project. And I'm going to probably do it in three pieces, do three books as I move along. And as the whole project finally finishes, you know, a couple years down the road, get that done, um, get that out and just try and, uh, continue to document it. And make sure, you know, I, cause like I said, I get a lot of questions and the primal power method that, that, that thing's continuing to run, doing really well. Um, but I'm kind of migrating and, and, and kind of doing this whole life encompassing change, you know, from health and wellness to simplification to hopefully kind of figuring it out at the end. Um, maybe <laughs> who knows? You know me, Jack. I, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of wing it. Sometimes I just, uh, I'm single, got a dog. So <laughs> my plans are, uh, moving at all times and subject to change at a short periods of notice. 
Um, and if, for people that are new, really new to the show, because we get new loon listeners every single day, uh, your website where people can learn more about you and uh, hook up with you and, 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 and what have you. Yeah, it's uh, www.primalpowermethod.com. And listen to me uh, on uh, the Expert Council. I'm uh, a regular, and uh, that's I mean, I'm sure a lot of the listeners know who I am. Um, but I don't think a lot of listeners know that I'm kind of going off in a different direction too. And I have been for, you know, about a year and a half, two years now. So just go to my website though. You can follow me on there. All my social media is linked. And on YouTube, I have all of the videos where I'm documenting my off the grid project. Very cool, man. Well, thanks for being with us today, Gary. And, and, uh, you know, we're going to have to have you back more often than we do, even though you're on the council pretty much every other week now is how we run the council. Uh, because I got to where the council shows were running three and a half hours and it was supposed to become my easy day. And, uh, yeah, not so much, but, uh, I really appreciate you being on, on the council as well because I know that's an extra thing to do. Well, you know, and thanks for having me on there. Uh, some of the followers have some great, great questions. And they're, they're, they're questions that I like because they tend to be the ones where people get the most confused. And I've gotten great feedback on people going, gosh, you know, I'm glad you answered that question. You know, I, I, my family always asks me about this and that. And, you know, it's a great place to kind of, uh, share what I'm doing. So I think all of us who are on it love it. It's a great venue for us. Very cool, man. Well, again, thanks for being here and uh, really wish you well. Uh, we're going to close up today with uh, – I've been playing different music at the end of the show, guys. And today, I just wanted to play something cool and kind of kick ass, especially having Gary on. So here you go. This is old school as it gets. We will rock you. And uh, just have a, a great day, guys. That's kind of what I wanted to do is set you up with that music to have a great day. With that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Gary Collins helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
done my sentence but committed no crime and bad mistakes I've made a few I've had my Thank you all, but it's been no bed of roses.